You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. How are you guys doing? Talking about money. Uh, we've been studying the gospel of Luke this spring, and um, one of the things Luke emphasizes is Jesus' teaching on money. Jesus talked about money frequently, and I think it's because money points to like a lot of other things in our lives. And so we're taking a few weeks here at the end of our study uh, to look at three passages in the Gospel of Luke about money. As Todd said last week, this is not like preparation for some giving campaign. There's no bait and switch here. This is just discipleship. <laughs> like, how do we believe the truth about the Gospel and apply it to our finances? That's what we're asking. There are three main things you can do with money. You can spend it, you can give it, and you can save it. And the passage we're looking at today has implications for all three of those things, but it's primarily focused on saving. And so let me ask you, when you think about your savings, like money for the future, what emotions do you have? If you think you've got plenty for the future, then you might feel safe or comfortable. Maybe you're nervous about inflation or market downturns. But if you don't think you have enough money for the future, then you probably feel anxious. And that's how most of America feels. I read a recent survey, I think conducted by Citigroup. It showed that 77% of Americans, three out of four, are anxious about their financial situation. And if you dig into the report, it indicates that the things that we're most worried about are future things, uh, retirement, emergencies, uh, children's education, things like, like that. Just naming some of those things is making you feel a little bit anxious. It's worth noting that rich people and poor people are anxious. Also, rich people and poor people are not anxious. And so our anxiety is not really about how much money we have. It's about our relationship to money. And in this passage, Jesus shows us two ways to relate to money. The first way he calls laying up treasure for yourself. In this way of viewing the world, a person says, all right, money's what make the world goes round, and so what's gonna make me feel happy and secure in this world is money and possessions. And this way of living tends to produce anxiety and greed. The second way Jesus calls being rich toward God. In this view, a person says, okay, there's more to the world than what I see. There's God and the kingdom of God. And so what's going to make me happy and secure in this world is knowing God and serving God. This way of life produces, as we will see, faith and generosity. Now, when I put the two options next to each other, do you feel the tension? I do. I'm the pastor, so I know that the second way is like the right answer. But I also feel really pulled in my soul to the first way in so many ways. It's hard to know where our heart is when it comes to money and savings. And good news, Jesus gives us a way to know. It's right there at the end of the passage in verse 34. Look what he says. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
that's the punchline. If you want to know where your heart is in relation to your money, or yeah, money and savings, follow the money. It's like a murder mystery. Who did it? Follow the money. Where's your heart? Follow the money. It'll be in one of two places, stored up for yourself or invested in the kingdom of God. Those are the two ways to live. All right, let's talk about them. The first way is in verses 13 through 21 of Luke 12. If you have a Bible or you have it on your phone or you can grab the pew Bible in front of you, I would love for you to open up to Luke 12 because we're going to walk basically through the passage. I'd like for you to see it. And the first section gives us the first way to live, which is to lay up treasure for yourself. And at its core, this way of life is greedy. Now, we don't like to think of ourselves as greedy, but what I'm saying is maybe you are. Let's, let's wait and see what Jesus says about it before we make a decision. Jesus shows us two types of greed here, two sides of the greed coin, if you will. First, we see someone who doesn't think he has enough money for the future and he's anxious about it. Look at Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, if that sounds like random, it is. It's out of place in the conversation. Before this, Jesus is talking about the stakes of the mission that he's calling his disciples to. They're worried that they're going to get killed for for proclaiming him. And he says, that's okay. Confess me before men. Don't be anxious about how you defend yourselves. He's calling them to like allegiance and mission. And then out of left field, this guy in the crowd is like, hey, can you tell my brother to give me my share of the money? Jesus is saying, hey, give your life to the mission. And he's saying, man, if I could just get my share of the inheritance, then my life would be okay. His anxiety about his money has got his heart focused on the wrong things. Now, Jesus doesn't get into this dispute. What he does is he takes the opportunity to warn the crowd about greed. Look at verse 14. He said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, the crowd, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness or greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The warning is not about having money or saving money. The warning is about the temptation to think that money is what will make your life good and how that opens the door for all kinds of covetousness. If you think that more money or more things is what's going to make life okay, then you will always want more. There will never be enough. You'll look at social media and you will want the things that you see. You'll be like, man, that, those clothes look sweet. I want some of those. I like the way that person did their house. I should redo my house. That car is cool. I could probably afford the payment on that car. I like his job. I should go back to school and get that job. Well, I like his kids. Can I get his kids? How do I make my kids like their kids? Because everything online looks amazing and you'll want it. And you'll feel like you're missing out on life in some way. It doesn't matter how much you have. There's always more. And that's a trap. Sometimes I do this thought exercise. It's really a daydream, but it sounds better if I say it's a thought exercise. And so sometimes I'll, I'll think about, I'll imagine winning the lottery. 
I don't play the lottery, but in my daydream, I do just once and I win. And I think it's God. And it's like, what will I do with all of this money now? The first thing that comes to my head every time is future stuff. Like, I'm going to set aside a bunch of money to, like, pay off the house and pay for kids' college and their weddings and retirement. It's all the stuff that's coming that I don't know how I'm going to pay for. That's the first thing I do with it. And then I start thinking about upgrades. Nothing crazy. Just across the board in my life, I'm just going to, like, bump everything up a level or two. That's all. Enough that I would feel really good about it, but not so much that you would notice and think, what's going on with the pastor? In there somewhere. And I think about giving, too. That's part of it. That's fun to think about. But here's the thing about the daydream. When I'm daydreaming about all that money and all the things I'll do with it, I feel, like, really relaxed. I feel good. And you know what that tells me? It tells me I'm, I'm basically like this guy. I think that more money and more things will make life good. And that is a form of greed that produces anxiety in our lives. The first step in dealing with our greed is just to ask ourselves this fundamental question. What do you think life is about? Jesus tells us here what it's not about. It's not about financial security and upgrades. All right, that's, that's the one first side of the coin, anxiety about not having enough for the future. Now, the other side of the green coin, of the greed coin, is, um, is the person who does have enough. They, they think they've got plenty for the future. What does greed look like for that person? And for that person, since they're really not real, Jesus tells a parable. Just kidding, they're real. Look at verse 16. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. All right, so his greed is not about anxiously wanting more. His greed is about selfishly keeping what he has, storing it up for himself. And so here's what's happening. There's a guy who's already rich. He's already doing fine. But then he has this great harvest, like a huge financial windfall. And it's a blessing. It's good, right? Like if you get a raise or your business does well or your investments increase, that's not bad. That's good. That's a blessing. But blessings present the problem of stewardship. Like he could have thought, man, I have this huge windfall. How can I use this blessing to help people in need? But he doesn't. Instead, he thinks just about himself. I want you to see just the repetition of the pronoun my in here. Verse 17, I have nowhere to store my crops. Here's what I'll do. Verse 18, I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. You see, he thinks, I've earned this wealth, and so it's mine to do with what I want. So the parable isn't condemning savings 
some amount of savings is prudent. We have, there are things that we need in this world. What the parable condemns is selfishness. He already had plenty, and now he has more, yet he remains indifferent to the needs of people around him. That becomes more clear in verse 19. I will say to my soul, soul, this is like my daydream, except it's real. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Do you see the point or the goal of his savings? Is to take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry is a phrase that's associated with like self-indulgence. He just wants to sit back and take it easy. Notice also, his ability to enjoy his present life is tied to his sense of financial security in the future. Right? That's what brings him joy now is knowing that he's good for many years. But look what happens in verse 20. There aren't many years after all. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? You can't take all that stuff with you. When I was a new Christian, the guy that discipled me used to tell me all the time, you'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You'll get it. Right? He's just trying to ingrain in me in this formative time in my life, hey, like, you're going to want to chase a bunch of money and stuff. You can't take it with you. That's what God is saying here. You fool. You, whose stuff is that now? In the Bible, a fool is someone who lives life as if there were no God. And that's how this man has lived. He has saved as if there's no God. He's lived as if there's no God. He's, he's put all of his money into things that won't last. And when his life is called to account, he has nothing of substance to show. His barns were full, but his life was empty. And Jesus says, so it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We're not farmers, and so let's try a modern-day parable. Two guys start a business, and it gets acquired like it's the entrepreneur dream. It's a huge payday, and so they take the proceeds from the acquisition and they invest a bunch of it, enough that just like a 6% return on that would take care of them for life. They, don't, they wouldn't have to work again. And then they take the rest of the money that they don't need for that, and they just kind of make some upgrades. Get bigger houses, better clothes, nicer cars, better vacations. They don't have like private jets or anything, but they're doing fine. Like, it's nice, it's comfortable. Well, they get bored after a little while, so they start another business. And that business gets acquired too. Another huge payday. And so they're sitting around like, man, I mean, we've got plenty, but what are we going to do? We could have so much more. And so they buy bigger houses and better cars and even better, more extravagant vacations. And then they're like, man, we still have some money. And so what they do is they buy some land with a nice house on it. You know, just like a place for the family to go on the weekends. And one weekend they're out there and they're all sitting around the fire, the, the couples, the husbands and the wives, the kids are inside playing and there's just this moment of just like serenity that settles in over them and they all look at each other and they say, man, this is the life. And Jesus says to them, you fools, this is not life. 
These are nice things, but it's not life. Life does not consist of the abundance of your possessions. Now, we have a lot of questions. Like, is it okay to have what we have? I mean, I have some land. Is that okay? Sounds like you said it wasn't. Can't temporal things be used for eternal purposes? How, how do we even know? How do we sort this out? Last night, Debbie and I were going on a walk and I was trying to sort these questions out with her and like, it was hard. It's, it's, it's really hard to know what is okay and what's not. And so what you begin to see is that God's not giving us rules here. He's trying to develop a relationship with us in which we seek him and find discernment and wisdom in him and that we're open-handed with him and we trust him. To wrestle with these questions is what it means to take the warning seriously. So it should be a fun week in GC. I hope you get to go. You guys get to do this. All right, the first way to live is to lay up treasure for yourself. And God says, that's foolish. You should invest your things, your money in things that will last. A better way to live is to be rich toward God. So what does that mean? And how do we do it? Uh, this is covered in verses 22 through 33. It's the second half of the passage. So look at Luke 12, 22. He said to the disciples, so he's given this warning about greed to the crowd, and now he turns to the disciples, the people who are following him, and he says, hey, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Jesus is proposing another way to live, a different way to relate to money and savings. First way is marked by anxiety and greed. This new way is marked by confidence and generosity. I just want you to look at the language in this section. So in verse 22, he says, don't be anxious. In verse 29, he says, don't be worried. In verse 32, he says, don't fear. It's sprinkled throughout. This way of life is a way in which we don't have to be anxious or worried or afraid. And notice the prominence of God in this way of life. Verse 24, God feeds the birds. In verse 28, he clothes the grass. In verse 30, God is our father who knows what we need. In verse 32, he's a king who's pleased to give us the kingdom. Verse 32, also, he's a shepherd with a flock. So instead of anxiety, we're called to faith and confidence in God. And then just look what this produces in us. In verse 33, instead of being greedy, we become generous people willing to give away what we have for the sake of others. This, in a nutshell, is what it means to be rich toward God. It's a heart focused on God and his kingdom. And you ask, okay, but what about the things we need in this world? Yes, he makes sure you get them. But that's not the focus. Look at verse 30. This is kind of the key verse where you see this. Jesus says, in 29, he talks about the, the nations, how they're just constantly grasping for money and things because they think that's what life is. In verse 30, he says, instead, seek the kingdom and all that stuff, the stuff you need, you'll get it. It'll be added to you. Okay, great. So what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, in shorthand, is like the rule and the reign of God. 
The way that we experience it is we experience it in his presence and in his provision and his power. And so this is the life we were made for. Think about the Garden of Eden. Like that's the life that God designed for us. And what's true there? Presence, provision, and power. God is with his people. He's providing for them abundantly. He's empowering them to do his work. The conflict in the story comes when they're tricked into thinking that there's more to life than what God has given them. And this this little desire for more gets in their heart and they act on it. It's interesting that the temptation is about food. They have so much food. Literally a global supply of food. Like all the food in the world is theirs, except for the fruit of this one tree in the garden. And that becomes their focus for some reason. Not all the things they have, but the one thing that they don't have. And so they look at it. It looks good. And the longer they look at it, the more they want it, the more they begin to feel like they deserve it. And so they take and eat. It's foolish. Then what happens is their eyes are open and they become aware of their nakedness. And they're ashamed and they want to cover their shame. And so now clothing is a thing. Food and clothing right there in Genesis 3 and right here in Luke 12. It's not a mistake that Jesus is talking about food and clothing. He's tapping into the very core things of humanity, the things that drive our anxiety and our greed, and he's connecting that to a life apart from God. We don't just need better financial practices. That ain't going to hurt anybody, but that's not what we really need. We need God. That's the good news about Jesus. In him, the kingdom of God has come among us. Like, it's not yet here in full, but already God is at work in Christ and through the Holy Spirit to be with us, to provide for us, to transform our lives. The challenge is keeping that reality, the reality of the kingdom of God, front and center in our minds. And one of the ways you can do that is just by constantly meditating on the realities of the kingdom. That life is about knowing God and serving God and trusting God. That he's our father, that he cares for us, that he's our king, that he has all the power. All of that. If you read the Psalms, they do this all the time constantly meditating on the truth of who God is and what he's done so that it might stir their hearts and strengthen their faith. That's how you keep it front and center. And that's exactly what Jesus does in this passage. He wants to get them thinking about God. And so he begins with the meditation about God as creator and provider. Look at verse 24. Consider the ravens. This is where Jesus gets a little hippie. Think about the ravens, man. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? Ravens were actually considered to be among the most detestable birds. And so the point here is that if God feeds these dirty birds, he's definitely going to feed you. Another thing about birds is they don't have barns. They don't have places to store food in large quantities. It's like a daily thing for them. 
Every day they get to work and every day they get the food that they need. This is our security in life, that God sees us and knows what we need. And so every day we can get to work, receive what God gives us with thanksgiving and not worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will be the same. All right, that's food. Verse 25 is about clothes, or 27. Look at verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, Solomon was like the richest guy that ever lived. But even he was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you you of little faith. In this image, grass is clothed with these beautiful flowers. Grass in the Bible is always a symbol of like momentary, fleeting existence. It's alive in the field today, it's thrown in the oven tomorrow. And yet, God clothes the grass with a beauty that outshines all the fashion trends. How much more will he clothe you? Deep down, what we all want is to be accepted. And the way that gets twisted, at least in our culture, is an obsession with image and appearance. And so we spend so much time and money on clothes and jewelry and makeup and all the things, fitness, all the things that give us an appearance so that we can be accepted. And maybe some of that's fine, but it all fades like the grass of the field. There's a better way to live. In Christ, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, God adorns us with the enduring beauty of character and love, and it's better by far. So here's a summary. The reality of the kingdom is that God is with us. He's providing for our needs, and he's transforming our lives into something beautiful. Given that, the only reason that we would ever be anxious about our life is just if we didn't believe that was true, or at least true for us. And Jesus knows that this is a struggle. That's why he said they had little faith. They weren't living into it. He knows that we're afraid to live into it because like, if I start pursuing God and not money and things, well, would I really be happy? Would I really have enough? There's fear involved, and he knows that. Look what he says in verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's not withholding. He's delighted to give it to you. His tone here is so tender. It's so reassuring. We are assured that God is not holding back. We are assured that we're not alone. We belong to a flock, a community. This is actually the main way that God will provide for us is through each other. Some of you have experienced that personally in this church. I've seen it many, many times, and it's beautiful every time. Every time it points everyone involved to our Father in heaven who knows what we need. Verse 33. 
This is how the needs are met. It's when people start doing this. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So pursuing the kingdom means using your resources for the sake of others, to meet needs in other people's lives. And he's not just talking about your extra money. He doesn't say use your extra money to meet needs. He says, sell your stuff. So he's talking about selling some things or dipping into your savings if that's what it takes to help people around you. And we're not afraid to do that because we know we have a father who will care for us. In fact, we're eager to do it because we know that that is a treasure that does not fade, that never goes away, that lasts forever. That is what it means to be rich toward God. Since um, the beginning of our church, one of our local partnerships has been with a church called International Restoration Church here in Austin. The pastor is John Monger. Uh, we've had him, it's been a while, but we've had him come share his story. If you ever hear John speak or you just have a passing conversation with him, there are always stories, incredible stories. Healings, conversions, abundant provision. I mean, it's just, and it's not like sometimes there are stories. It's every time there are lots of stories. This is this guy's life. I'm always like, John did more today than I did this year. I don't know how to feel about that. And one of the ways we partner with them is we support them financially, which is a blessing for us. It's a privilege, but sometimes it's kind of tricky because John can't hold on to money. Like he's surrounded by needs. And if you put money in his hands, it immediately goes to the needs around him, which is awesome. But sometimes there's like a specific need that we're trying to meet. And we're like, how do we, okay, we got, this can't go to John. We gotta figure out how to get it to somebody who's gonna use it for that thing. And Jordan and I were talking about this one day in the office. And I was like, man, what is the deal with that guy? He cannot hold on to money. He just gives and gives and gives and gives. And it's like, there's always more, I guess. But like, what's going on there? And Jordan says, oh, well, he actually believes that the kingdom belongs to him. That like the resources of the kingdom are always at his disposal. And I was like, oh yeah, that's what Christians believe. That's right. I mean, if you want a picture of what it means to be rich toward God, there's one right here in our city. He's a pretty good one. And it's not begrudging. The guy's the happiest guy you'll ever meet. You would look at his life in one way and you would be like, man, John doesn't have much. But if you look at it in another way, you would say, John has everything. Maybe it's me who doesn't have much. And so how do we cultivate that kind of faith and generosity? Well, let me leave you with this. If it's true that where our treasure is, our heart will be also, then it seems to me what he's saying is that our heart follows our money. If that's true, then we can use our treasure, our money and our time and our energy to direct and focus our heart. Like you can take some of the money that you're spending on yourself or saving for yourself and you can use it for kingdom purposes to help meet the needs of people around you. It'll be hard. You'll be afraid that you'll feel like you're missing out on something. But the more of those investments that you make, the more your heart will follow and the more you'll become rich toward God. Start simple. Don't leave here and like sell everything. Well, if Jesus tells you to do it, do it. But start simple. 
Just start in very simple ways around you and then just keep doing that. Keep trusting God and see his provision and his presence and his power in your life. That's the closest thing we're gonna get to a rule because Luke 12 is not like a financial seminar. It's not like 10 principles to do better. It's about your heart. It's actually a call to repentance and faith. He's saying, repent of your anxiety and your greed and the worldview that lies underneath those things. And believe in me. Believe in the kingdom at hand and enter into it. I've been thinking about food and clothing this week, as you can tell. Like they're featured in the fall story. They're featured in this passage. And so I've just been thinking about how are food and clothing featured in the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. And there they are. On the cross, Jesus was stripped of his clothing and publicly mocked. He he took upon himself our nakedness and our shame so that we could be clothed with righteousness. To be clothed with his righteousness is to be accepted by God. It is to stand before God with a beauty that lasts forever. And then to help us remember what he's done, he gave us a meal. Uh, The night before he died, Jesus was with his friends and he gave them a meal. He held up a piece of bread and he said, this is my body, take and eat. He held up a cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of of the new covenant, my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In this meal which we're about to take, God is with us. He's providing for us, nourishing us. He's changing us by his grace. So as we come to the table today, we come with open hearts and hands ready to receive the kingdom and to be liberated from anxiety and greed and fear. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.